we're not necessarily going to be able to go through the entire book of Romans. Um, It's too long for that. But we are going to really focus on the first eight chapters, okay? But even the first three chapters are basically kind of an extended argument that reaches a conclusion here in chapter three. So rather than spend like three or four weeks talking about sin every week, um, we're just going to jump to the conclusion um, and talk about really the heart of the gospel. The good news starts with bad news. And here it is. You're worse than you think. You just are. And so am I. But at the same time, you can be more loved and more secure than you ever thought was possible because of what Jesus did, living and dying in the place of sinners. If you want to understand what is at the heart of Christianity, what is it really about, Romans chapter 3 really gets to it. So this is actually one of my favorite passages to talk about. Um, One Bible scholar, Leon Morris, who wrote a commentary on this and other books, said that this passage we're looking at tonight may be one of the most important paragraphs that was ever written. That's strong. Um, but I, I think he's not, he's not wrong. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. So, you know, last week we talked about sin. We talked about the idea of idolatry, how mankind suppresses the truth about God that he has revealed through his creation. In chapter 2, he talks about how God has revealed his truth in our conscience as well. And, and, and in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he basically makes this point. Whether you're like an irreligious person just doing whatever you feel is right to do, or whether you're a person who feels like I've got this law written on my heart and and I'm going to try and keep it, or even if you're a religious person who's like, well, this is what the Bible says, and darn it, I'm going to do it no matter what. It doesn't matter. Every one of us falls short of the glory of God. And, And that's kind of the argument that we're picking up here in chapter 3, when Paul begins to talk about um, kind of this conclusion, okay? So I want to kind of catch you up, because we're not going to read chapter 2. We're going to jump in Romans chapter 3, picking up at verse 9. So Paul is actually Jewish in his background, just so you know, so that, that's why he says we at the beginning here. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? He says, no, not at all. For we all have, we have already charged that all people, both Jews and Greeks, and it doesn't just mean people that live in, in Greece. For the Jews, there were Jews and there were everybody else. Okay? So this is basically all humanity, whether you're Jewish or not, are all under sin. We're going to talk about why that's a very important phrase. As it is written, and then he goes through a whole string of quotes from the Old Testament. Actually, in the New Testament, this is the longest string of Old Testament quotes in one place. Probably because this is a hard thing to believe. Here's what he says. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know, and and he's right, he's expecting the Jews to be like, yeah, because the Jews knew that all of those verses, when they're quoted in the Old Testament, in their original context, all of them are speaking about people who are not Jewish. But look what Paul does here. You can't distance yourself, in other words, he's going to say, because, verse 19, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So you can't distance yourself and say, yeah, 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 I, we know about those non-Jewish people. You know, they're awful. But us, and Paul says, no, what the law says, it says to everybody, we're all alike We're all alike under the law. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, that is God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Stick with me. I know there's some complicated like uh, religious lingo and whatnot, but hopefully I'm going to help you understand what's going on here. But verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law, meaning the Old Testament law, and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith? That is, the Jews and the non-Jews. Do we then overthrow the law? By this faith, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, this is a challenging passage. I get it. I'm hopefully going to help us walk through it. Let me pray first. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We sense, even if we're trying to to figure out what Paul is exactly getting at here, we sense that this is really important. And it is. We pray, Lord, you'd send your spirit to help us not just to understand, but even to be gripped by this incredible truth that you've revealed here for us in Romans chapter 3. We ask that you send your spirit to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So there, 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 there's some, some, some tricky stuff here, but here's, here's one of the things that's helpful to understand. The word law in the Bible is used a number of different ways. Even in Romans, there are several different ways that it's used. Sometimes it refers to the Mosaic Law, the five books. Yes, I do believe Moses wrote the five books. If you want to talk about that, we can sometime. 
Um, sometimes it means the whole Old Testament. Sometimes it means the law as a principle that your life is based upon. Okay? And actually, a couple of those are actually used even in this section. So as we go through it, hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll kind of help you understand some of that. But here's what, here's what he's saying. The first part, I think, is really, you know, sometimes the Bible is hard to understand because there's like 2,000 years of cultural difference, okay? And sometimes it's hard to understand the flow of thought or the grammar or, how the, or what certain words mean. Other times there are things that are hard to understand because we don't like what they say, right? And, and when you're trying to teach the Bible, you always have to try to kind of take into account, well, what's the real challenge, not just to us understanding this passage, but to really receiving it and embracing it. Because I got to tell you guys, this is dynamite, life-changing stuff that Paul is talking about here. But it's humbling before it's encouraging. Because it, it starts out saying, no one seeks God. And you might be sitting there thinking, that's a little harsh. That's a little strong. I mean, I, I know myself, I was, you know, looking for something meaningful. And eventually, you know, I started kind of reading the Bible and maybe I decided that, that Jesus was it. And, you know, or I know friends that are spiritually seeking whatnot. Understand what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that nobody seeks for higher purpose in their life. He's not saying that there aren't people looking for truth and trying to figure out what does it mean to live and how should we then live. He's not saying that. What he's saying is no one seeks God for God. No one seeks God to lay down their life and say, God, I am yours. Do with me whatever you will. There are a lot of people, including people in church or people who've been raised in church, who are looking for meaning and purpose or looking for a way to even control God and make sure that everything's good with him, but looking for God to be able to say, Lord, I want your glory more than my own. The only way that happens is by a miracle of grace. That, that's what the Bible says. Now, the tricky thing is, you know, I think most people that come to faith in Jesus, that put their trust off of themselves and onto Jesus, that they're like, you know, as, as this old hymn used to say, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That's what it means to be a Christian. But, but to do that, I, I think there are that people that, that, that have done that, and they did it because of God's grace, and yet maybe it's been explained to them incorrectly. In other words, I think most people that have had that experience would say, you know, God must have done something to open my eyes to see the beauty of the gospel, to draw me to himself. But then sometimes they get in churches that will teach them, well, you know, it was all about you and your choice and your free will. Like Romans chapter 3 says, if you have been drawn to God and you've put your hope and trust in him, it is a freaking miracle that happened. It's a freaking miracle because no one seeks God. And he says this so that he says, every mouth will be shut up. And later he says in verse 27, what then becomes of boasting? Well, it's excluded. It is excluded if you understand the actual gospel. If you think 
that you did God a favor by trying him on, so to speak, well, then you will always have something that you can kind of take credit for and pat yourself on the back for. So do you understand? Like, Paul would never say verse 27 unless he understood and is teaching what I'm telling you, I think he's teaching, which is if you are a Christian, it's a miracle by God's grace. Because it wasn't some natural temperament that you had. You weren't more spiritually sensitive just by nature. You weren't smarter than other people. But I know that a lot of times Christians give that impression. You know, sometimes we look down our nose at other people and be like, why can't you be smart? Or why can't you be courageous? Or why can't you be a good moral person like me? And that is to actually undermine the heart of the gospel when we do that. Because the heart of the gospel is no one seeks God. And if you have been drawn to God, it's because he did something miraculous. He did. Now, I love the way Charles Spurgeon, this great old Baptist preacher, he lived back in the 1800s, he put it this way. The believer knows that his faith is not a weed indigenous to the soil of his heart, but a rare plant, an exotic, which has been planted there by divine wisdom. And he knows that if the Lord does not nourish it, his faith will die like a withered flower. He knows that his faith is a perpetual miracle, for it is begotten, sustained, and preserved by a power not less mighty than that which raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. That's the first part of our text. That there's no way that we would have come to God and laid down our life and worshipped him unless he changed our hearts. And, and, and really, you know, when he's talking all about, like, look down at verse 19, you know, 14, and, or sorry, 19 and 20, when in 20, when it says, by the works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Here's what he's saying. Every one of us knows, and this is, he mentioned this in chapter two, there is a law written on our heart. There is God's power and glory is revealed to the creation. Every human being knows that we were made for something and for something bigger than ourselves. Every one of us knows that. And every one of us knows that we need to justify why we are here. And, and, and we do it in all different kinds of ways. Sometimes we try to do it by judging other people. Like if we don't feel so good about ourselves, at least we're not as bad as that person. At least we would never do that, right? It's all about trying to justify ourselves. But the Apostle Paul says, and I know this may sound like bad news, but you know what? It's actually the most freeing thing you can ever understand is that there is nothing you can do that can really secure the smile of God. Now, again, I say that might sound like bad news, but you know why it's actually good news? Because most of the slavery in your life and my life is refusing to accept that. It, it, most of the slavery in my life is thinking, if I could just try a little harder, if I could just be a little more clever, if I could just be with this group of people or have this opportunity, then I would really be able to secure the kind of life that I think I deserve. And, and we're in bondage to that if only, if only, if only, if only. And for some of us, we think the biggest problem is us. It's what we haven't done. And we beat ourselves up all the time. 
And the only thing that's going to set us free is to realize if you go down that road at all, you will end in a dead end. So stop. Stop. You can't secure the smile of God. And here's what Christians believe that you were created in God's image to have a relationship with him that would, be, that would be about basking in his love. Have you ever known what it feels like for somebody to look at you? You know, sometimes you see that, you know, the, the little memes that go around, you know, find somebody who looks at you like this person looks at this thing, you know? That, that's what, that's what the, the heart of the gospel is in that. You were made to bask in the love of God. You were made to just have him just stare like googly eyes at you, right? And, and at one level, you know that. And we try to find all other things that will substitute, <coughs> that will be good enough, and they're never good enough. But the gospel, the good news, is that God has done what was required, that he would never turn away from you, that he would never reject you. And that brings us to the rest of this passage. Because the gospel is so much better than we could have ever hoped. Verse 21 starts with this hugely important theological word. It's the word but. In some ways, you could say the whole gospel is contained in that word, but. As a matter of fact, there's a famous Welsh preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he did preach an entire sermon on the word, but. That's it. We deserved death and hell. No one seeks God, but now, now, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what he's saying is, look, now, at this point in time, something has happened that changes everything. But it's not completely out of the blue. The Old Testament law and the prophets talked about this. But it, it didn't happen through the Old Testament. The Old Testament talked about a God who would provide what was necessary for his people to be secure in his love. But that doesn't happen until Jesus comes and lives and dies in our place. So that's what you see here. This righteousness, he says in verse 22, of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So it was, it, it was in keeping with what the Old Testament said, but now it's actually happened. And it's through Jesus Christ. It's not just like God decided to change his mood or his mind about people. Like he was angry and mean in the Old Testament, and now he's decided to be loving. That's nonsense. That's not biblical at all. The only thing that changed was that Jesus actually came, actually lived, actually died on a bloody cross, and was raised from a tomb. The empty tomb and the bloody cross is what changed everything. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It's a big deal. What's the big deal? The big deal is in light of no one who seeks God and this God who is holy, that the Bible actually goes on past verse 20. See, the Bible in some ways could have just ended with verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
Okay, then what hope is there? But, there is hope, but now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Do you see it? It's amazing. It's beautiful. But there's more. If I can find the right page, there it is. This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. See, there was no other way for all the promises of the Old Testament to come to fruition and for the story to have a happy ending. The law couldn't change our hearts. See, God wants more than just to get you into heaven one day. He actually wants to change your heart of suspicion and criticism to a heart of loving, joyful praise. And the only thing that can do that is the beauty of Jesus and understanding what he's done. It's a shocking thing, this verse 21, this righteousness, because do you know what it means? That the righteousness of God has been manifested through Jesus Christ to all who believe. That means that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we get everything that God says about Jesus comes to us. So forgiveness is one thing. Forgiveness just means that you're no longer guilty that maybe you're brought back to like a neutral starting point, okay? God wanted me to glorify him, to enjoy him forever, but I've really screwed that up. Okay, he forgives me and I get a new chance to start again. But that's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that we have the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God means the beauty that comes from doing everything God requires from the heart. That's what Jesus earned by the life that he lived. And that's what we get credit for when we are united to him by faith. To be justified is to be seen as beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything he requires and you've done it from the heart. And we are so far from deserving that or so far from being able to earn that, but that is what's required. Jesus said, you are to love the Lord your God, what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, from the moment you're born to the moment you die. Is there anybody here that wants to say, yep, got it, I did it? No, but every one of us knows that that's what we were made for. And the smile of God is secured by Jesus, who did that? Now, verse 24 is this great word. It says in verse 24 that we are justified by his grace as a gift. But in, in the Greek, there's this, this, this word which some of the translations bring out, freely by his grace. And it's actually interesting. It's the same word as in John 15, 25, where Jesus says about some people that they hated me, he says, without a cause. It's that same word, without a cause. Now, this is really important. To be justified freely by his grace means that there isn't anything you did that made you deserve it. And the reason that I want to point that out is some people can think of faith as the part that we do, as the thing that we contribute. And it actually doesn't work that way. 
The, the Bible never ever says that we've been saved because of our faith. It does use this word by. Now in English, by can mean through or it can mean because of. But in Greek, there's two different words. And the, the Bible never says in the original Greek that we're saved because of our faith. Do you know why that's good news? Because your faith is full of holes. <laughs> it is. And so it's such good news to know that salvation is not a reward for your strong faith. It's really important. Here's the way Tim Keller says. It's possible to think of faith as a kind of work, a summoning up of some psychological feeling state toward God. But the word freely means without a cause, wholly and totally unwarranted. Therefore, we must not fall prey to the subtle mistake of thinking that our faith actually saves us. If you come to think that your belief is the cause of your salvation, it will get you to look at the quality of faith, and then when you see doubts, it will really rattle you. There's a guy who wrote a letter about this that I just think is so great, I have to share it with you. It's a guy named William Romaine, you know, like Romaine lettuce. Um, he lived back in the 1700s. He was a friend of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace and some of the other hymns we sing sometimes. And he was writing a letter to somebody who had written him, and they were very concerned because they were really struggling with a lot of doubts. And they were just not quite sure if God loved them. And here's what he says. He kind of gets down to what's really going on in this person's life and see if this might help you. He says, here's the problem. You're looking not at the object of your faith, at Jesus, but you're looking at your faith. You're trying to draw your comfort not from him, Jesus, but from your faith. And because your faith is not quite perfect, you are just as much discouraged as if Jesus was not a perfect savior. But not only that, there's a great sin in this way of reasoning, even though it's finely cloaked, but it's rank treason underneath what's going on here. Rank treason, he says, against the crown and majesty of my Lord and God. For you are kept looking, you keep looking at your faith, at whether or not you really believe. Why? What, what are you doing that for? He says, so that you may be satisfied with your faith. And what then? Well, no doubt, if you're satisfied with it, then you'll rest in it and upon it satisfied that Christ is yours because you're satisfied with your faith. Listen to this. He says, this is making a Jesus of your faith. It is, in effect, taking the crown of crowns from him's head and placing it upon the head of your faith. And he says, don't do this. But he says, I also observe how by this mistake, this great sin, this sin of sins, you are actually robbed of the sweet enjoyment of the God of all comfort. You lose what you seek, which is assurance and security, and you lose it in the way that you're seeking it. You want comfort, but you're looking to your faith for comfort. If your faith could speak to you, it would say, I've got no comfort to give you. Look to Jesus, it's all in him. And indeed, my friends, Romaine says, it is. The Holy Ghost, the Comforter, will not glorify your faith. He will not give it the honor of comforting you. 
The only things he takes to comfort you are the things of Christ. Look not at your hand, but look not at the hand of faith, but look at Jesus. Look not to how you hold him, but that he is yours and holds you and your faith too. Therefore, you shall never perish, but have everlasting faith. I I think this is so important because so many people that grow up in Christian churches are made to always introspectively be looking at their faith. I had this. I remember ninth grade asking Jesus into my heart and wondering whether it really took. And then every time there was another kind of come forward at the meeting just to really make sure that you really, really, really believed and you rededicate your rededications and you're constantly in this place of wondering whether you really, really meant it. Let me tell you, you didn't mean it good enough or well enough to deserve the love of God, but you didn't need to. If you put your faith in Jesus, even if it's weak, even if it's full of holes, it doesn't matter because if it connects you to Jesus, then you are beautiful in his sight. Do you think that would change your life? I think that would change your life if we really believe this. Now, let me just say one other thing. I'm not going to get into all all these things, but notice this. If you're one of those people who thinks, yeah, I just really don't like doctrine. I don't like theology. It just makes people argue with one another. You can't get Romans 3 without some theology. And he uses this word propitiation. Did you catch that one? Propitiation, what does that mean? It means to turn aside wrath. Now, this is uncomfortable because a lot of people say, I don't like this idea of the wrath of God. We've talked about that a little bit this semester already. But but here's what you need to understand. If you are in the first century reading what Paul says here, you would actually be offended at something very different than the way 21st century people are offended. You would be offended that God lets guilty people off the hook. And so in verse 25 and verse 26, Paul is having to answer the question, is God actually just? How can God be just and justify wicked people? Now, maybe sometimes you've had that question, particularly if you've you know, suffered at the hands of wicked people, then maybe that is a, 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 and it is a legitimate question. Most people in our day, though, really have a problem with God judging people, all right? But here's what you need to understand. We sing it sometimes in this hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, this hymn that John Newton wrote. He says, let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store, to the storehouse of mercy, What does that mean? It means that at the cross, the mercy of God and the justice of God are fully glorified, exemplified. The cross is not a compromise between God's justice and God's mercy. God is not in conflict between his justice and mercy. God is not up there wrenching his hands, wondering like, I want to love these people, but I just can't. No. God, God designed the gospel. The wisdom of God is so evident in the gospel that Jesus perfectly satisfies the justice of God and demonstrates the mercy of God. What he says, actually, is people in the Old Testament. How do people in the Old Testament save? Do you know? 
Well, I, I won't have anybody jump out and, and shout out the wrong answer because that would be embarrassing. They were saved by Jesus. And you might be like, really? How? Jesus didn't, didn't exist. Well, Jesus did actually exist. He just wasn't incarnate yet, but he's you know, the member of the Trinity who's eternal, um, like God the Father and God the Son. But what it says here is that God overlooked in his forbearance, he postponed punishing the sin of people in the Old Testament until Jesus came. So Jesus didn't just take your sin, he took all the sin of those people who lived before who had put their faith in God. In the Old Testament, people knew that God would be the only one that could deliver them. When they, when they put their hand on the sacrificial goat, they knew that it wasn't actually dealing with their sin. The book of Hebrews tells us they knew that it didn't really work because they had to do it over and over and over and over again. But Jesus comes once for all, and there is now no more sacrifice needed. Not animals, not bulls, not goats, not you beating yourself up. There's nothing else needed to secure the smile of God. And what Paul is saying is God is just in the gospel. He's just in the gospel. Now, G.K. Chesterton. Do you guys know G.K. Chesterton? He's a brilliant writer, um, an influence on C.S. Lewis, who most of you guys have probably heard of. He has this, this amazing essay in his book called Orthodoxy, where he talks about at the cross, the furious opposites, the furious opposites are both kept, and they're both kept furious. Here's, here's the way he says it. Listen to this. The lion, the Bible says, will lay down with the lamb. But remember, he says, this text is too lightly interpreted. It's constantly assumed that when the lion lies down with the lamb, it's because the lion becomes lamb-like. But that is a brutal, I love this, a brutal annexation and imperialism on the part of the lamb. That is simply the lamb absorbing the lion instead of the lion eating the lamb. The real problem is, can the lion lie down with the lamb and still retain his royal ferocity? That's what the cross achieves. And do you know why that matters? Because you can't hope for a God who will bring justice and make all things right if you think the cross took away and emptied all of his wrath or changed his character from no longer being a God who cares about justice to being kind of like a wishy-washy God who just loves everybody. The cross demonstrates for us that God has never backed down from his justice. There is not a sin that has ever been committed that will not be dealt with. There will be no loose ends. The lion will keep his royal ferocity because justice smiles. Justice doesn't say, oh, no fair. I didn't get to exactly you know, do, do what was right. No, justice will be able to do what is right. You see, some people criticize Christianity because of its doctrine of hell, believing in a God of wrath. And other people criticize it because, you know, you just let everybody off the hook and everybody gets forgiven. And how fair is that? But the reality is Christianity is so weird that it offends everybody. Um, you know, G.K. Chesterton in the same essay, he says, you know, imagine 
if you heard about uh, a man, an unknown man who was spoken about by people. You've not met him, you just hear about him. And some people um, say that he's too tall, and some people say this guy's too short. Some people say he's too fat, and some people say he's too skinny. Chesterton says one explanation might be that he's an odd shape. But there is another explanation. He might be the right shape. Outrageously tall men might think he's too short, and very short men might feel him to be tall. Perhaps this extraordinary thing, this man that we've heard about, is really the ordinary thing. Perhaps, after all, it is Christianity that is sane and all its critics that are mad in various ways. Here again, in short, Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious. What difference does it make? Well, it makes a huge difference. Two quotes to, to end us tonight. C.H. Spurgeon again says, I said in, earlier in this sermon that I took this quote from, he said, I said that clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are accepted as if we never sinned. I correct myself. Had we never sinned, we could only have stood in the righteousness of man. But this day, by faith, we stand in the righteousness of God himself. The doings and dying of our Lord Jesus Christ make up for us a wedding dress more glorious than human merit could have ever spun, even if unfallen Adam had been the spinner. Do you understand that we have more beauty and glory in Christ than we would have had if Adam had never fallen? That's pretty wild to think about. And I'll close with this from that Welsh preacher again, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, we deserve nothing but to be blotted off the face of the earth. But what has happened is that before the foundation of the world, this blessed God, these three blessed persons considered us, considered our condition, considered what would happen to us. And the consequence was that these three persons... God, whom man has never seen, stooped to consider us and planned a way whereby we might be forgiven and redeemed. The son said, I will leave this glory for a while. I will dwell in the womb of a woman. I will be born as a babe. I will become a pauper. I will suffer insult in the world. I'll even allow them to nail me to a cross and spit in my face. He volunteered to do all that for us. And at this very moment... This blessed second person of the Trinity, as Mikey reminded us, is seated at the right hand of God to represent you and me. He came down to earth and did all that and rose again and ascended into heaven. And it was all planned before the world for you and for me. Do you still say you're not interested in theology? You still say you've not you've very little time to be interested in doctrine? You will never begin to praise God or worship or adore him until you begin to realize something of what he's done for you. Can I just tell you, when I went off to college, I knew like about this much. I knew that Jesus loved sinners and in some way his death at the cross like meant that I could be saved. That was about all I knew. And I tried to kind of live on that for four or five years. My heart grew cold. I didn't really ever feel much of a sense 
of joy. And it, some of it was because there were all these kind of big theology words that kind of scared me and I knew Christians fought about and I didn't want to look into it. My senior year, I got thrown into having to teach a Bible study. So I started going and looking at used bookstores, trying to figure out what I actually believed. And I just got to tell you, when I began to understand some more depth of what the gospel really is about, my heart was warmed. It doesn't happen automatically. But if you have a very shallow understanding of the gospel, it's hard to have a very rich experience and appreciation and joy in his love. It's why we sing these old hymns, because they're so full of what he's done. Because we need songs that are more honest about struggle and more explicit and clear about what the gospel actually is that would draw forth from us worship and praise.